0: Oh my gosh, this war is a catastrophe, it is a man-made catastrophe, it absolutely did not need to happen, there was no objective reason for it to happen at all, and now that we've stepped in it, there's no stepping out of it, all the catastrophes that are happening will happen, this is the nature of war, it is majorly de-civilizing, you open the door, you fall into the pit, you're now in the pit, this is your life.
1: Welcome back to This Person I Met. This episode will be part two of our conversation with Ms. Anna Kruselnitskaya, a teacher, translator, blogger, and author. She has written three books, including one called Cold War Casual, a compilation of interviews translated from Russian to English regarding the effects of the events of the Cold War. This fascinating book will be referred to several times throughout this conversation. Our interview with her was half a year ago, but still the Russo-Ukrainian war barrels on, stealing lives and homes. There is still no end in sight, but Ms. Khrushlnitskaya's voice echoed the sentiments of the whole world. In this episode, she generously shares her opinions on the current war, government propaganda, her personal experiences as a Russian living in the US during this time, and more. As always, thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy.
2: When did the people really sense the war was really gonna happen for real?
0: I would say most people who see the world as a rather reasonable, if complicated and contradictory place, did not see this war coming. I don't think many of us sensed it at all. I'm, spe- I'm speaking about myself, I'm speaking about my friends, my vast network of acquaintances. When the army, When the Russian troops were gathered um, in February along the Ukrainian border, most of us thought that this was just posturing. We were actually absolutely stunned, speechless by the war.
1: And do you have family and friends in Russia? I do. Mm -hmm. And once the war began, did they communicate to you how life was like in Russia
0: and what their situation was like? Um, Yes and no. Um, Okay. So, like many Russians, I am considerably Ukrainian. My my paternal grandma was Ukrainian, absolutely Ukrainian, did not speak Russian until she turned 18, moved to Russia. But the paternal side of, of my father's family is heavily Ukrainian and i've been to ukraine i have extended family in ukraine and i'm not a singular case we are an intermingled peoples we we are we it's there are so many people in ukraine who are only russian speaking who are ethnically russian or considerably ethnically russian and so for many many millions of us this is fratricide we do not understand how this can be happening within our family this is unimaginable as war, but also the kind of war it is, it is eviscerating. Because of that, and because of the political tensions within families, and um, I'm sure you know about this from living in the United States, you'll have families who, you know, who are divided. They are, some really want Trump to be president and think they never, he never lost the election. And eventually you just start to tiptoe around the political disagreements. So that's one reason that many families who are on different sides of, of the border will discuss the war only in limited terms or try to avoid this discussion. And they, they want to keep their ties, they talk to each other about everyday matters and the price of milk and how the weather was and you know the poor potato harvest, but they will not discuss the war because it is cr- incredibly charged People's um, sources of information are incredibly different. People live in, in different, in fields saturated by different media. They, they will avoid, and not all families do, and some families do talk about it, and then they you know, fall apart, or people stop talking to each other. It is, it is a really, really, really touchy subject. And I do keep, keep in touch with my family in Russia I discuss the war with them minimally, in part also because some of them worry that their messages are read by the security. They are read by the um, FSB, FSB, this is the Federal Security Bureau of Russia, so the, the secret police. And they will not write anything about the war for fear that they will be persecuted. And that's actually a serious uh, threat. It is not just in their heads. There are maybe about 20,000 uh, cases of criminal prosecution of people right now who were talking about the war and either criticizing the government or criticizing the army or the government or the, and the army, and sometimes simply referring to the war as the war and not the special military operation that the government of Russia demands it be called. So people who fear prosecution in Russia, they're not making this up. So that's why talks with family, with friends about this whole war business are fraught and many people will avoid them.
2: Um, so do you personally know anybody who is in, involved in this war already?
0: As a combatant? As, uh, it's like being in the army? Yeah. or I know friends of friends um, who were sent uh, to the war, who were conscripted, drafted, I do not keep in touch with them. I just—we're um, not close enough. I don't have any first-hand interactions with them right
1: now. And was this due to like the partial mobilization that? Putin yes.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was due to partial mobilization, um, so-called. My brother's best friend, for instance, is uh, Buryat. Buryatia is um, is a region in Russia that is that was very heavily drawn on. In the conscription effort and his two brothers, um, he, he, is, he comes from a village, he doesn't live in that village right now. The day that mobilization was announced some guys from the army just showed up in the house in the village where his, the rest of his family and his two brothers lived and they just grabbed the two brothers and they took them. So this is because of the mobilization for sure.
1: And about propaganda, when we interviewed Melania, she said that a lot of, like, the Russian government's, or she said a lot about the Russian government's propaganda, Mm -hmm. and she said a lot of, like, the majority of people in Russia were, like, brainwashed and they supported the war, and so what do you know about Russian propaganda and the Russian
0: people's opinions? Mm -hmm. I guess to make a statement like that, you really have to have spoken to the majority of Russian people, and I understand uh, why Melania would make that statement. I understand all of her feelings, honestly, honestly. But again, you have a very, very large country with a sizable population. There are, there are problems with measuring its opinions. There are surveys, there are polls. You have to look at how they're conducted. Before you, before you know how effective a poll is, you have to see how it was conducted, how the questions were structured. This is a, a terribly interesting field of inquiry, polls surveys. There are virtually no independent surveys or polls left. Uh, Most of them are government. You have to see the participation rates. You have to see this invisible factor. You have to actually somehow figure out whether the person is telling the truth. This is impossible. There are tricks to try to figure it out. Like for instance, I'm sure you've taken questionnaires before and sometimes you see the same question phrase differently appear five times. This is one of the ways to catch a person in the line. The poll might not have it. So the government polls um, say that, you know, 80 percent of Russians support the war, 80 percent of Russians support the president. you got to really look at these numbers with a questioning eye. You have to see how clean this data is. So imagine you are a Russian just sitting at home. You're just, you know, an accountant. Somebody calls you on the phone and says, hey, Natalia Petrovna, so do you want to talk to us about the special military operation? And upon hearing that, many people opt out of the survey. That's your population that is not counted. So it's not 80% of the population that support the war. It's 80% of all polled who agreed to respond and sat through the poll and did not opt out midway, who said, allegedly, We don't know. There is no oversight over those polls that they support the special military operation. Were they speaking from the bottom of their heart? We don't know. Did they maybe think that their questions are written down? And if they say the wrong thing, then the special police is going to come and knock on their door and drag them out in the middle of the night. They may have that suspicion. Russia does have a long history of persecuting people for political reasons. And then you also have to see what people are asked. So, for instance, if I ask you this, hey, so our nation is engaged in a senseless, bloody massacre of people who live just across the river. Do you want to keep killing them in the name of our imaginable, imagined glory? You'd probably say, I don't think so. Or I can say this. So our nation is under attack. The NATO troops are surrounding it. They're sending in anthrax. They're, they have all these bio labs in the United States that are putting bad germs in the pigeons. And all the pigeons are trained to attack ethnic Russians. And all the pigeons are going to fly over. And they're going to only bite the Russians. And all the Russians are going to die of cholera. This is where we are right now. The only way to protect us is to be at war, unfortunately. Do you support this righteous war to protect the integrity of your home? You will be like, dude, I guess we do. So really, I'm going to say that there are people in Russia who truly support this war, but there are are much fewer people in Russia who actually understand what this war is. Sorry to ramble on. Melania also
2: said that Russians who protested against the war many of them just didn't want to face the consequences such as a sanction he said that this is not Putin's war this is Russia's war every Russian should be held accountable what do you think of that statement?
0: What do you think of that statement? Sorry to put you on the spot Um, you don't have to answer I'm just giving this to you as a general question to ponder over at leisure how do you hold an entire nation, including the 80 year olds, the schizophrenics, the two year olds, the newborns, the protesters, the agreeers, the uninformed, the informed, the criminally minded, Mother Teresa. All of them, all of them accountable for an act or an event. Does that make sense? I don't think so. However, What I think does make sense is Melania's feelings about this. For her, because of her family history, because of her nationality, because of her age, this is true. You cannot, one cannot, we cannot, our minds are faulty. We cannot entertain qualified reasoned positions when we are in the grips of emotion, in the grips of pain, in the grips of fear. We have to make our decisions quickly. They have to be unequivocal. We have to decide on the spot, right now, what's good, what's bad, and act accordingly. Is this going to be an overgeneralized sentiment? Yes. Can we avoid that? No. This is one of the things that is bad about war. It doesn't give us time to sit down and ponder and investigate. And analyze. It's fight or flight. I can't say it's, people say that war is dehumanizing. What they mean is it's de Reasoning is a luxury. Reasoning is for people who are well-fed, safe, have time, have education. War brings us back to just being the biological species. Things that have to survive and feed and be warm and be safe and run and hide and fight, and bite, and fight and fight and bite, fight, bite, bite, fight, bite, 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 bite. The itchy and scratchy show. That's what war is.
1: And is there anything else you'd like to add about the war that hasn't been said?
0: Oh, it's, it's a massive question. Um, I think general questions always breed general answers, and general answers are always inaccurate. This war is a is a massive crime. It's a catastrophe. I've already said. I can't wait for this to be over. For me, by the way, for it to be over, there's a lot of, um, there's now there's a lot of interest at stake. There's a lot of concerns on all international fronts. Um, lives are lost, infrastructure is lost. Some voices from the West urge for peace talks, even if those peace talks mean concessions on the part of Ukraine, losing territories. I'm guessing that's a imaginably practicable. Solution, but I just, I would hate that. Me personally. For me, the acceptable um, terms for peace is all Russian army is gone. Ukraine is restored to its borders before 2014. Reparations are paid. There is an international effort underway to restore Ukraine's infrastructure. After this, I can start worrying about the image of Russia or the Russian language, or the Russian culture, or, you know, whether the store called Total Wine um, next to Kohl's starts to carry Russian products again. Um, To me, this this is the order of events. First, Ukraine is saved. And I think all of those concerns about how but this part of Ukraine has always been us, that part of Ukraine has always been with you know, Poland, so let them be, and we want this. And, but our Russian language, but our culture, but there are many Russian speakers in Ukraine, but they want to speak the language, they want to continue with the culture. All of those things take a backseat to the cessation of war and the restoration of international order and justice. We have tried and tried as a species to become less idiotic and less aggressive. This is why we figured out international law and international agreements, um, international borders and how they are inviolable. And how when you want some territory or you want to restore your country to some imaginary great again time in the past, you do not just march over and grab the land of a nation, however politically young it is we want to go back to that. We want to try to keep that. If we want to try to be less murderous, less animalistic, which is what the whole history of humankind, I think, is working towards, this has to be not permissible. Breaching another nation's borders are not permissible. That's what we try to keep in mind, or should.
2: Um, in the first chapter of your book, you talk during the Cold War, you said a lot of Americans built bunkers during the Cuban Missile, or were thinking about building bunkers during the Cuban Missile Crisis, mm-hmm. because they were scared of, you know, under being under nuclear attack. Mm-hmm. And so now that the Ukrainian War, you know, has not really started, but it's ongoing, do you think the issue of nuclear threat is over people's heads again? And and do you think, do you see any connections between the people's reaction then and
0: now? Um... Unfortunately, nuclear threat is being bandied about. Uh, There's a lot of posturing by the Russian government that keeps referring to, in the words of its president, it keeps referring to the nuclear arsenal that it has at its disposal. But it won't use it because it's peace-loving. But it has it because it's strong. But it won't use it because it's peace-loving. But it can because it has it. But it won't use it but it does have it because it's strong. So this is the narrative. This, I I gave you a concise rendition of the past six months of the nuclear narrative of the Russian government. Is it a threat? It's a threat. Will it come true? We don't know. Nobody does. Countless analytics, Western and otherwise, are butting heads in, you know, every venue about whether we are actually looking at a credible nuclear threat or just some language that refers to it. And we can't know. That's the thing. Um, Will people be building bunkers here? People have been building bunkers here for a long time. There's a whole subset of people who are called preppers. I'm sure you're aware of them. You're aware of them. They, They like to build their bunker. They like to be safe from everything. They, by the way, mostly fear their own government. Um, not the government of Russia. Uh, But um, I don't see Russians building bunkers. They never built them because their government built them for them. We all had uh, shelters, which were under every theater, every school. Those shelters, I guess, are being revived and dusted up. But that's maybe more part of the general militarization of the consciousness of the Russian people and the bureaucracy that must perform its bureaucratic functions, as it's told by the government. Um, But yeah, I don't know. Are you considerably more afraid of the nuclear war now than you ever were? No. See? People just go to school. They go to work, they fall in love, they have ice cream, they have a fight with their mom. They're behind on their homework. That's what people's lives mostly consist of. Even in a state that's authoritarian or totalitarian.
1: And I know that there's like a lot of Russian immigrants in America and a big Russian community lives in Ann Arbor as well. So what has life been like being a Russian living in America at this time?
0: Um, You know, I don't think I am a classical Russian living in America in that I am friends with some people in the diaspora, but this is not my exclusive social circle. Some people do mostly hang out with the diaspora. They, they, you know, Russians hang out with the Russians and uh, Filipinos with Filipinos. Um, that's not true in my case. I am friends with some Russian people, but my life is not by any means confined to the Russian diaspora. I have personally, I heard people in the Russian diaspora um, say that they've met with unpleasant attitudes or remarks from Americans. Again, who? who's Americans? I need a more specific description. Um, <laughs> this is a landmark of this isolationist mindset. When you are in the diaspora, confined to the diaspora, you look around and you see this whole America around you as foreign and not the people you know, not the people you hang out with, the other. I don't have that. I credit um, having a functional English. When I arrived to the US with this development, I have always been able to talk to the locals. If you're not really able to talk to the locals, they remain other, they remain barbarians. You know what the word barbarian comes from? It comes from Latin, and barbarian means someone who says bar, bar, bar. You don't understand their words. All they're saying is bar, bar, bar. So there are barbarians at the gates. Um, and some people have said that Americans said something bad to them, like they told them not to speak Russian at a grocery store aloud. I myself have not had ex- that experience. I had maybe the opposite experience. I will be, I don't know, volunteering. Um, I volunteer in gardening capacities and I'm volunteering with my fellow volunteers in Cobblestone. and. It's war and they're like, so where are you from? And I'm "I'm from Russia. And they say, you're in our prayers. I guess they do have a qualified understanding of what it is like to live a life, be from a place, be affected by things. Um, But yeah, I've heard people say things about how they feel less welcome. The same total wine situation, it's a store. It has wine, I go buy wine. It has a note on the front door that says, from, you know, March of this year, we no longer stock products made in Russia. And I know people who have seen that note and walked away, they felt themselves personally offended. And I saw that notice and I said, "Uh uh-huh. And I went in there and I bought some Spanish wine. I, I understand the sentiment. I understand why it's there. I also understand that it is not about me. These people are taking a stance on a morally charged issue. They're aligning themselves against the aggressor in that they don't stock vodka. I'm not the aggressor. I actually also don't buy vodka right now. So I am not offended. I guess it has to do with the, um, your personal level of defensiveness. Somebody could come up to me right now and say, Russia sucks, and I would say, I know where you're coming from. It doesn't cut me to the core. It's not about me. Not about my biography.
2: I'm sort of relating on that topic. I was recently reading like on the news, it was like there was this artwork and it was called like the Russian dancer and it got renamed to the Ukrainian dancer. Mm -hmm. And so what is your opinion on like people walking away from Russian culture and heritage and because of the war?
0: I think I've already said that. First, we stop the war, fix the people, fix the buildings, fix the power stations, give everybody a place to live, a place to work, food for their children. Then we can talk about this. I guess I have a very blue-collar mindset about these things. Um, I understand why this sentiment happens. This is the unfortunate wages of war. You have a war, you have belligerence. You have belligerence, you have combatants, you have enemies. Enemies are enemies. Taking a qualified position, an understanding position toward your enemy, you have to be in a position of safety. When you're not, you're not. I think this whole culture and language thing, the dust will settle after the war dust settles. Right now, not a priority for me. I see the news. I, I, you know, see the news. All of the um, monuments of Russian writers, Russian uh, political figures, historical figures are being packed up and shipped out of Ukraine. I understand this as an inevitability right now. Possibly up for review later, in peacetime. I am more concerned about stories where people's lives are involved. Uh, For instance, I read on BBC World News that. About 16 teachers in Ukraine, school teachers uh, were prosecuted as uh, collaborators for teaching Russian history and the Russian language. That I'm concerned about, but that's because it's people, it's their livelihoods. I think we should generally lay off school teachers. This is a, you know, it's a a hard job to do. So I do not care if they are removing the statue of Catherine the Great. I do more care if they're putting a teacher in prison for uh, teaching Russian. But that's because there's a person, there's a living, breathing person with a life that is ticking away. And they don't want that, you know, 60 year old lady in prison because she taught the wrong thing to the school kids. But again, this is the unfortunate inheritance of war. This is what always happens. There is no war that's fair. There's no war that that is kind. There's no war that is humane. There is no war that is reasoned.
1: And your book, Cold War Casual, it was like a way for ordinary people's experiences and memories to be documented. And I think you called it citizen diplomacy, that they could like, I don't know, see each other's viewpoints and Mm -hmm. stuff. And so do you think you'd be interested in doing something similar for
0: the current war? I think at the height of tensions right now, it is kind of pointless. When I was talking to people about Cold War, First of all, it was already cold to begin with. They were not engaged in active combat. They were not fighting against each other with guns. Um, Second of all, there was a considerable chronological remove. This book was, uh, the, the interviews were recorded in 2010, 2011, 2012. Cold War, in its traditional chronology, was over by then, several years before that. I think we're very, very, I I cannot predict when the mending of bridges can begin. I hope it is possible. I hope it will happen. I think it is impossible now. I would not go and argue with a Ukrainian person on Facebook because they said something inflammatory about the Russian classics of literature. I am, I understand. Not my time. Not my place. I don't have the soapbox now. The war needs to end. People need to get better. Then we can talk.
2: In the forward of your book, you mentioned like a lot of things that the book was going to be about. So there's also a section you mentioned what the book was not going to be about. But you said in the thing that uh, you wouldn't go on and talk about it because it would take too long. But now that we have time, do you mind talking about what your book would not be about?
0: It is not about proving a theory. It is not about pushing an agenda. It is not about summarizing people's experiences and boiling them down into a nice little pill that you can take and know everything about everybody. It was not about condemning governments. It was not a book of history. I recorded people's memories as they were reported to me. I do not know how truthful they were. I do not know how truthful their memories were, or how faulty they were. You may have noticed that I did not correct people on historical inaccuracies. They would say that something happened in a year X, and it actually happened in a year Z. I did not touch that. This book cannot serve as a source of historically accurate information. It can only serve as a source of what people told me. Um, Of all the 15 people who read it, I hope nobody drew any broad conclusions about the national character or the national mentality or any of those fake things that don't really exist. I guess my one outcome I hoped for was if somebody was certain about what they thought, this book was supposed to make them less certain. This book is in a way anti-propaganda because propaganda is always simple, it's always repetitive, it is always emotionally effective um, and it is supposed to make you get up and feel, get up and feel and then act on that feeling. And I wanted to make a book that did the opposite, that made you sit down and think. This is definitely a peacetime endeavor. Okay, now I think that's all the
1: questions (laughs) we have. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was my pleasure.